Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Rachel Manikin, who is a professor of Jewish studies at the University of Maryland. And we'll be discussing her newest book, which is titled The Rebellion of the Daughters, Jewish Woman Runaways in Habsburg, Galicia, which is from uh, Princeton University Press. So uh, thank you, uh, Professor Manikin, for joining me. Thank you for having me. So let's start off. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Okay, so uh, I grew up in uh, Bnei Barak. I went to uh, Besiako from primary uh, through high school and seminary. Uh, Besiako in Tel Aviv, that's the Sharansky uh, Seminary. That's how it's known for. Uh, I later uh, went to the university. I first studied uh, not knowing what I wanted, computer science, later philosophy. And then I uh, discovered the history and that really became a a passion for me. Uh, I'm a historian of uh, Galician Jewry, Galicianers. Galicia was uh, originally part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And after the first partition of Poland in 1772, it was annexed to the uh, Austrian, to the Habsburg Empire, later called the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, My PhD in Jewish history is from Hebrew University. And my uh, doctoral thesis, which became my first book in Hebrew, was on the first Orthodox political party in modern time, the Machzikei Hadas Society, which was founded with the support of the Belzerebi and Rav Shimon Schreiber, Rav Shimon Sofer, who was the uh, Rabbi of Krakow and the son of the Hatam Sofer. Uh, in fact, uh, Rabbi Schreiber was elected uh, in 1879 as a representative of Machzikei Adas uh, to the Austrian uh, parliament. Uh, this was a few decades before the establishment of the Fogodati uh, style. So it's really the first political, orthodox political party is Machzikei Adas. Okay, so how did you get uh, interested in the current book, in the Jewish runaways, the runaway, how did that, how did that come about? Yeah, so uh, before writing my book, uh, I didn't know anything about the, the hundreds of girls who ran away uh, from home, most of them Orthodox uh, girls and converted to Catholicism in Krakow around the 20th, at the turn of the 20th century. I discovered this phenomenon by accident as all good things. Uh, when I was in one of the archives in Krakow working on another uh, project, and I came across a file uh, with notification, formal notifications of, of girls who intend to, to convert. Uh, and I, I started digging and saw that the runaway uh, phenomenon was widespread in Galicia, and, uh, and it had been discussed extensively in the Jewish and non-Jewish press, uh, even in the Austrian parliament, but nobody really uh, had written about it, at least not since uh, uh, World War uh, World War II. Uh, so uh, I decided to uh, start uh, uh, investigating this. Uh, who were those girls? Why did they run away? And what was the response of the uh, Jewish uh, community and, uh, and the state? Uh, the parents sometimes, a lot of the parents sometimes claim that their daughters uh, were kidnapped and coerced to convert uh, by, by the church. Uh, so this raised all sorts of interesting questions. Uh, after all, unlike Russia, and this is important, Jews in the Habsburg Empire, including Galician Jews, uh, were citizens with equal rights to all uh, others. So what was going on here? What is, what is this whole business with the church and the, the convent? And why were the girls uh, running away? And it appears that in many cases, the immediate cause was their disinterest in marrying the, the guys, the boys chosen for them by, by their parents, often uh, Hasidim. Uh, Oh, and those uh, uh, guys that the, the parents chose for them uh, had only a religious education, uh, something that uh, those girls didn't didn't value because they had been 
Polishly, but not Jewishly uh, educated. But I find out something else that explained the phenomenon by studying police and, and court files. And police and court files are, are a, a wonderful source to, to hear voices of women, since most women at this time, especially Orthodox women, didn't write. Uh, so uh, according to the Habsburg law, uh, individuals were considered minors until age 24 uh, and, and under their parents' uh, uh, authority. Since uh, most uh, Orthodox Galician Jews didn't marry according to state laws, their, marriage was, were not, uh, their marriages were not uh, recognized. So even if the girls were married, they were still considered un under the, the parents' uh, uh, authority. But according to another Habsburg law, a person could decide to convert to another religion, doesn't matter Jew or Christian, starting at age 14. Uh, a child, I don't know, a young person at age 14 was considered as somebody who could already uh, decide uh, to what religion he want to uh, belong. So uh, conversion was arguably a safe way for girls who wanted to leave their homes. Because even though uh, a girl was, was still under her parents' authority, if she was less than 14, and those girls who ran away, uh, ran away they, they were, uh, most of them were between the age of 15 and uh, 21, 22. Uh, so girls found out that uh, they can run to the convent and stay there for a few months uh, to prepare for their conversion. Uh, where else could they go uh, at this time? This is the end of the 19th century. Uh, there were no support groups or anything similar. Catholicism, Catholicism wasn't alien to them because of schooling, and we'll talk about uh, schools uh, later. They also lived in a Catholic uh, society. And the church also later found uh, uh, jobs for them, usually as governors in, in good Catholic homes, uh, so to speak. Uh, so this is, when I started voting on, on this project, those are the first uh, elements that I uh, found. Yeah. So before we go a little deeper into some of those, I think the, the first thing to, to, to mention to listeners is, I mean, you said it's in Galicia. Where, where in Galicia are we talking about here? And also what years mainly are you looking at for this? Okay. Okay, so uh, this this phenomenon was was a, a more spread in Western Galicia around the Kharkov area. In the book, I explain why uh, why in Western Galicia, while Eastern Galicia was multinational, multi-religious, Western Galicia was uh, uh, Polish in terms of uh, the ethnicity of the population of the non-Jews. And, and, and Catholic. Uh, so the pressure also, especially in, in schools and so on, was, was uh, uh, quite, uh, you know, uh, emphasized. Whereas in Eastern Galicia, with Lemberg, Lviv, Lvov as its capital, there were Ukrainians, Ukrainians there, Armenians, Germans, and so on. Western Galicia with Krakow as uh, its capital is, is uh, almost exclusively Polish and, and Catholic. And we're talking about the years, late 1870s until World War One, turn of the century before and after. Okay, so now we get to, 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 to the girls and you mentioned really the schooling, that's a big, a big deal. So what was the, the, I already mentioned here, the last chapter in your book is going to be about Besiakov and then and, and the, the, the preceding movements and then the whole, the, the change in education, but we're obviously before that. So what was going on? What was the, stat, the, the state of Jewish female education at the time, um, especially as opposed to male education? What was going on? And then obviously, well, that will, will men, you'll mention how that played a factor, a big factor in what was going on here. Yeah, so uh, I'll start again with the law. I'm a big believer in the uh, understanding the legal uh, uh, situation at any given time. Uh, so again, unlike the, in the Russian Empire, uh, Austria uh, published, or the Austro-Hungarian Austro Empire at this time, uh, published a mandatory education law in 1868. 
And a few years later, 1873, there was a, also a Galician version of this law where the Austrian law required eight years of, of schooling. The Galician law required only six years of, of schooling. Uh, so uh, uh, the Orthodox population had no opposition in sending their, their daughters uh, uh, to schools. There were no Jewish schools. Uh, at that time. Uh, so depending on their uh, socioeconomic uh, status, they would send them either to public school, they were all Polish schools, uh, or to private schools if they were uh, rich. Uh, in terms of, uh, 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 by the way, in, in, the, uh, in all schools, uh, I don't want it to be perceived as secular schools because the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Galicia in particular were religious states. Religion was very important. So saying that they were secularized in, in school is, is really inaccurate. It was really Catholic. They celebrated the, uh, the Catholic religious holidays and, and so on. Uh, there were a mandatory religion classes, two hours a week, a minimum of two hours a week. And when there were enough Jewish students, there, was all, there were also classes uh, uh, of, of the Jewish religion. But the teachers were colonized Jews. In most cases, they were not Orthodox uh, teachers. Uh, so uh, it starts with a, uh, with a, a, a schooling. And, and the, the reason why parents had no, and even the religious uh, leadership, had no problem uh, sending the girls to school, because uh, first of all, there are no clear halachic uh, instructions about secular studies for girls. It's not prohibited halakhically, uh, as far as I uh, know, and I uh, looked into it uh, a lot, because it's not bitul Torah, so uh, it, it, it was not uh, a problem. In terms of the religious uh, education, uh, there was no formal uh, uh, Jewish religious education for, for girls. They studied uh, either at home from their mothers, uh, and, uh, and families who uh, were well off, they would hire tutors, uh, teaching them the prayers, the, the brachot, uh, reading the Hebrew letters, uh, so they could daven, but they didn't understand the, the, what, what they were saying unless they, they would look in the uh, Sidurim with the Yiddish uh, explanations. Uh, so we get a, a, a really a, a, a gap uh, between the, uh, the uh, uh, Polish uh, schoolings where, uh, you know, their intellectual uh, achievements uh, were respected. Uh, they spoke Polish uh, to their friends. And then they came home to uh, Yiddish-speaking families where the parents didn't have any idea of what this schooling experience is because the parents... Uh, almost in all cases, never went to school. It was before uh, the law was, was published. So we get this uneven uh, type of uh, situation between the, which creates a, a conflict between parents and children and, and, and difficulties for, for the girls who live really in a bifurcated type of, uh, of world. I mean, just to emphasize a little more, I mean, when they went so they, when they went to these schools, I mean, you want to just give some examples. What were they studying there versus as to what to be expected at home? Well, there was studied, there was a, the law had listed, you know, they, they studied math, they studied Polish history, they studied Polish uh, uh, geography, they studied uh, literature, what a... You know, your average primary school would, would offer to, to students. Uh, interesting is Sarah Schneer also went to, uh, uh, she went to a public school. She didn't come from a well-off uh, family. She loved uh, her school and she also attended the, the religion classes at her school. In my book, I give the name of the religion teacher in her school. She attended those classes. So... Um, she had that, uh, how would I say, uh, uh, 
experience of living in into into roles during your childhood. Right. Okay. So this was like you said already. There was a divide, and now not only was a divide. Well, you can mention this here already. There was a divide between the the boys and the girls because the boys did not go. I mean, I don't know if you emphasized explained enough why the boys were not going to these schools, but the girls were. And then obviously, when it came time to get married, there was this massive gap. Yeah. So. So the boys, uh, parents didn't want to send the boys, uh, Orthodox parents, and Galicia is mostly Hasidic. So it's not a Hasidic phenomenon, but it just happened that the Orthodox population is mostly Hasidic. Uh, since they had a, a voting power, uh, and uh, you know they had Marzikiada, they had uh, Askanim, uh, operatives and so on, they had all kinds of arrangements with the, uh, the Poles had only one party, the, the Polish club in the Austrian uh, parliament. So the arrangement, they, they committed to vote for the Poles. Uh, and indeed, uh, almost all uh, Orthodox voted for the uh, Polish party. Uh, and in exchange for that, uh, the Polish authorities uh, turned a blind eye to what they do with their sons. In addition, especially in, uh, in cities, town, and urban areas where uh, the, the uh, Jewish population uh, was quite large, uh, the Poles didn't want Orthodox boys, with, especially Hasidic boys with the way they look, dominating their schools. So they were happy. Uh, in addition to political uh, deals, they were happy to have them outside of the schools. So that kind of uh, work for them, and uh, more. I, I should say most of the uh, uh, Orthodox boys continue to to go to the to the cheder. There were some cases where they took as external students uh, the uh, final exams, uh, but in most cases they continue to uh, attend the cheder. Was opposed just uh, you know not making a big deal out of it, even though. Uh, Parents who wouldn't follow the law, there were fines imposed on them. Uh, but that's how they got around it. So the, what was the rabbinic response to this? Or was this just inaction? There was no response from the rabbinim and the rebbes because they, they, they didn't think there was an issue? Or what happened when they realized there was an issue? So uh, there wasn't really a, a response. There was in 1903, there was a, a, a big rabbinical, international rabbinic assembly, but it was not only for Galician Jews, so I'll, I won't talk about, about that. Uh, once the press started uh, reporting about this phenomenon, and this starts in 1900, was the first case that I discussed in my book of uh, Michalina Araten. Uh, in different Jewish newspapers, uh, there were all kinds of suggestions how to solve this problem of the uh, runaway girls. And the, I would say moderate Orthodox uh, newspapers, mostly uh, with a nationalist orientation like Hamagid and Hamitzpeh, they called, they blamed the Orthodox society for doing nothing with their girls and they called for the establishment of schools for girls where they uh, would be taught uh, Hebrew and, uh, and uh, Chumash and uh, Jewish history. So it became a, a solution that, that was kind of uh, associated with the more, uh, with nationalistic uh, uh, Jews. And the Orthodox Express and Mahzikeya Das also had a newspaper also called Mahzikeya Das. Uh, they said that uh, there's no problem with the education we give our daughters. The only problem is that we uh, give them too much uh, over what is required by law of secular education. We have to do the minimum and what they learn in home is enough. So even in the newspapers, uh, there is no, uh, there was some time they were called the, uh, it's, it's our uh, fault, but the solution was never schools. Like, uh, yeah. So before we get to the uh, three main specific stories that you discuss in your book, um, how, how many 
how many, I mean, what were the numbers? Do we know exactly how many of these runaways were there? Do we know a kind of a yes. number of what was going on? Yes, so I, the, the material is, there are three uh, national archives in Krakow. They're now, the, I think the building is already finished. It's all now going to be housed in uh, one location. Uh, so uh, I managed to uh, put down a list of over 300 girls with their names, with the names of their parents, when they were born, uh, where they uh, came from. Uh, so I have around uh, 320 girls uh, in, in the list. And I imagine the, there were some more that went under uh, the, the radar because there was a whole uh, civil procedure for, for conversion. Uh, one had to fill out all kinds of uh, forms, uh, uh, deliver it to state authorities and so on. That's why we have all the all the all these names and and in several cases, uh, uh, people approach me asking uh, uh, after you know reading the book or a view of the book told me they have a story of an aunt or whatever. And in some cases, I found them in in, in the list. So uh, uh, yeah. Wow, that's uh, fascinating. Okay, so yeah. so. Why did you um, uh, why did you decide to structure the book? The structure of the book is is the introduction, and then, like I said, there's the Beisakov, and the and we'll talk about that. The, that's at the end. But in the middle of the book, the bulk of the book is these three stories. Uh, why did you decide to discuss, you know, structure the book that way? Focus so much on this on these specific stories. Yeah. So what I did, you know, it's referred to in uh, history as the micro histories, and the reason why I did it was because I found three files, police files, court files, government correspondence, uh, very detailed about those cases. Uh, so, uh, and, and uh, you know, not in all elements, but uh, those are, I see them as typical cases. Uh, but it's, as I said, because I came across this, this, this serial, which, uh, uh, really, each uh, you know collection of, of archival documents uh, uh, it gives you a story, and and, and you can follow the, their life uh, trajectory. So yeah, okay. that's so why that, I, I chose them. So now we can get to the story. So the first story you already yeah. alluded to, uh, Michalina Raten. So let's talk about uh, talk about yeah. this story. What what happened there? Yeah. So. Uh, so this became the, the most famous story. Uh, it was uh, reported in Australia and the London Times. It became the, became a, a huge a huge uh, uh, story, and I'll I'll give some reason why uh, it happened. Uh, so Michalina Araten, she's also she she's called in the documents also Mechla. I'm not familiar with a, a Jewish name uh, Mechla. I know Mechel is a, is a man's name, but Mechla, I'm not familiar with that. But uh, I guess in school she was called uh, Michalina. She was the daughter of a very wealthy and prominent girl uh, Hasidic family in, in Krakow. She was sent by, by her parents to a fancy uh, Polish school, a sort of a Finnish school. In the advertisement for the schools in the Polish press, it's all in Polish. But there's one line in English. It's called an English school for young ladies. So this is where her parents sent her. It was all it reflected the, uh, you know, the the economic, socioeconomic status of, of of the parents. They took her out after she completed the sixth grade. That was the the minimum uh, uh, in in Galicia, uh, and the. Uh, her, uh, uh, she, her parents also provided her with uh, music lessons. In some of the letters, she writes about how she used to go to her uh, music teachers, music teacher. And then uh, on on the Sabbath of uh, December 30, 1899, when her parents uh, came home from uh, uh, from synagogue, uh, she was not home, and the maid informed her that she left to town. Uh, the father went looking for her uh, the whole day, couldn't find her. And the next day he went with a policeman to that convent where all those girls found refuge. 
So he knew that when your daughter disappeared, this is uh, where you go. And he received a, a positive, a positive uh, uh, answer. The uh, convent claimed that she entered the uh, convent uh, voluntarily. The father, Israel Aratin, uh, he claimed that she was led there by the washerwoman. Uh, by the way, I'll add in parentheses, the washerwoman lived in the same building as Sarah Schneerer. And she was interrogated several times. So Schneerer was aware, not just because of the press report, it really happened in, in her, her, her building. He also claimed that she, she was uh, not 14 years old, that she's 13, which means that the convent is keeping her uh, Ill illegally. That's a whole, I can't get into it. The, the question of, of her age is, is uh, complicated. Uh, the father came to the convent about 10 times. He wanted to see her, but she refused to, to see him. And she met her grandparents and her aunt in the convent. Uh, the mother was sick. The father asked her to come, even as a policeman, to guarantee that she, she'll go back to see her mother, but she refused. She said that the mother should come to the, to the, to the convent. The father sent several doctors uh, to uh, check her in the convent, and he also checked uh, the most famous psychiatrist in, in Krakow to the convent to check her uh, mental condition. She later claimed in a letter uh, that uh, uh, his intention was to commit her to a mental institution as a way to get her uh, out of the of the convent. Uh, the father is really a hero uh, in this in this story. Uh, he went to a, a great length, including meeting with the Emperor Franz Joseph. He's the only one, the only parent who, who got the audience with the emperor. Uh, he met uh, government uh, uh, ministers. He hired private uh, investigators, uh, several lawyers. And he kept the story alive in the press. Uh, uh, he was convinced because he, he paid money for tips and he got tips from uh, all kinds of locations. So he was convinced that she was just transferred from one convent uh, to another. Because uh, after, I forgot to say that, a month after she entered the convent, she disappeared. She left a, a letter for her father which he didn't pick up. Uh, and then uh, he searched for her and he was convinced that she is in Galicia, transferred from one convent to another. But uh, as it turns out, uh, she was taken to a, a, a convent in a place like, uh, you know, Chebin, Chebinia. It's uh, close to Chebin. I was there in that uh, convent. It's like half an hour outside of, of Krakow. She was baptized there. Uh, it was all arranged by, by the uh, Felician Sister Convent, the first one where she, uh, she uh, uh, was kept. And then she was smuggled uh, outside of the country. She was given a, a new name. Uh, and uh, she was first in Belgium and then in Posen and in Poznan. By the time her father located her, uh, she was Catholic, she was married, and she was already uh, a mother. So that's the uh, end of this, uh, of this uh, uh, saga. Uh, so to, just two follow-up questions. First of all, do we, so we know exactly why uh, she ran away and converted? So uh, she uh, left uh, several uh, letters. One for her father, she wrote him in Polish, so apparently she, she couldn't write in, in Yiddish. Uh, and all those letters I kept are kept in the in the court file. Uh, but when he wanted to pick up the letters, the nuns wanted the police to be present there because they wanted to make sure that he wasn't going to use the letter against them. So they wanted him a policeman to, to be there, present there and for him to read the letter out uh, loud. And he refused, so the letter was uh, transferred to, to, the, to, to the court. In the letter, she, she tells him, she talks about the, the age, uh, which he claims that she, she was not uh, 14 yet. 
and she talks about the psychiatrist. And she said she understood that he wanted to commit her to a mental uh, institution. Uh, there were also uh, uh, two letters that she wrote, and this is another uh, element in the stories that I discovered in the police and in the court files. Uh, she became, uh, there was a, a military uh, officer, doctor, who lived across from her home. And he noticed that she keeps on standing by her window and, and looking at his apartment. And then uh, he, he saw uh, a note. At the end of the story, they, uh, twice uh, uh, they went out together with another girl. He said that they were not alone. Uh, was, was surprising, they, they took a, a stroll in the park where everybody could, could see them. Uh, and when the, this is according to the uh, military doctor, he said that when this was, when her father found out about this, he beat her. And as a result, he stopped all contacts with her because he didn't want her to, to be beaten uh, on, his, on his account. And in the letter, in one of the letters that she writes him, uh, she tells him that uh, her father came over, she gives the date, and he told her, you're 15 already, and I found a bridegroom for you. And she said she, she cried. Of course, she never met him. Uh, nothing helped. Uh, she was supposed to get engaged in the following Sunday, the Shabbat after that she ran away. She said, there is no way that I'm going to be engaged to this. Uh, she called him, uh, uh, I'm trying to uh, translate from, uh, from German, uh, wax puppet. This is how she called. She probably knew who he was. Uh, so according to her, this is why, why she ran away. She didn't want to marry uh, this guy. And again, we have somebody like that who goes to a, a private Catholic school. She takes music lessons. And then her parents expect her to marry a, a guy who only had a, a religious education. Uh, there, was, there was really nothing in, in common uh, with what with uh, their her father's expectations and and her uh, expectations. Why did this story become so famous? Is it like you said? Is it because of the father's efforts? So it's it's also the the, the father's uh, uh, effort because he kept it uh, alive. He wrote letters all over. Uh, but that's not the, the only reason. Uh, various parties latched on the story for their own purposes. Uh, the Viennese uh, liberal uh, uh, politician and newspapers, including Jewish uh, liberals, for them it was a, a classic case of a church overreach. So, uh, uh, and the state's failure to, to protect the, the right of, of Jewish uh, citizens. For the conservative Poles, especially those in, in Galicia, uh, the church was wrongly accused of kidnapping her. So they talked a lot about her. This is also a time when there is a rise uh, 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 in anti-Semitism in this place. Uh, so anti-Semitic newspapers. Uh, also, uh, uh, for, them, uh, they, uh, the, for them, it was a case of Jews using the state to, to attack the church. So there were all kinds of uh, uh, sides that wanted to, to use this story. And also it's a story with elements, uh, sensational elements that uh, made, I don't want to say good, you know, quote unquote, uh, uh, story in the newspaper. We have a, a young girl, she was from Hasidic home. There is a love story uh, with a military a doctor. She disappears. Nobody knows where she is. Because it was not, uh, at this time, nobody knew really that she was already, you know, out, out of the country. Uh, and this is really the first time uh, in 1900, although there were already 20 years uh, of girls running away, but nobody wrote about, him, about them. So this made it, uh, and also the Marzikeya Das newspaper wrote a lot uh, about, her, about her story. 
Okay, so obviously there's more details in the uh, in the book that you go into that people can read it uh, there. So now the, the second story that you get into is, I think, Dvoral Lefkowitz, I think it's pronounced your name right. So you want to talk a little bit about uh, that story and what was different about that story? Yeah, so uh, Dvoral Lefkowitz is a, or Lefkowitz, uh, is a village girl. Uh, her father is a tavern keeper. Uh, she has a sister and a young brother, and she, she works in the tavern uh, serving beer and other things. And the reason why I wrote about her also because it's a very detailed uh, court file because uh, we don't know anything about the lives of, of village girls. And she ended up an extremely intelligent girl. Uh, what is interesting that is, is that she knew how to write in Yiddish. She writes uh, uh, to her parents in Yiddish. Her letters are in the court file. So she was probably taught by, by, by a tutor. Her parents first sent her to the village school, and then as she grows a little uh, older, they sent uh, sent her to to the city school. So they obviously uh, uh, were interested in her getting a, a good a good education. She also, according to her testimony, and we have her testimony, her sister's testimony, the mother, the father, the neighbors, the the Polish uh, uh, friend. Uh, she runs away for the same reason. Her parents wanted her to marry somebody that she was not interested in. She runs away on the eve, literally on the eve of her wedding. She went with her mother to Krakow to uh, uh, get the, the wedding dress that they that they ordered. That they ordered, and as the mother waits for her in the hotel, she doesn't come back. So mother waits for a few hours and she goes home and the father says right away, she's probably in the convent. They knew. Uh, she was there about five months. Uh, she also had a, a Polish uh, a lover. She was later, later not interested in him. The convent found for a, a job as a, as a, a governess in the home of the... Uh, uh, administrator of the post office. So th this was a, a, a good a good family. But her parents, uh, the way they handled their whole situation is really admirable. They uh, visited her. They, they didn't cut ties with her at all. They visited her. And, and the father kept pressuring, pressuring her uh, to return to, to Judaism. I'll make the story short. Uh, she does return to, to Judaism. Uh, when I say return, every conversion, as I said in the beginning, there was a, a civil procedure. Uh, there was no mention of any religious uh, ceremony. She's still considered Jewish, but she had to undergo this whole uh, give testimonies, go to the uh, municipality uh, and so on. And then she spends time with her uncle in, in Hungary, who's also a tavern keeper. And she writes her parents uh, letters in Yiddish. Uh, she tells them that she fasted on Yom Kippur and so on, uh, and that the uncle found a good shidduch for her. But at the same time, she writes a letter to the convent. And she said, the Jews don't let me you know, uh, attend mass and so on. So you could see the, the confusion. She is not uh, in in a good place. Uh, she loves her parents, so she doesn't write, run away from, from the family. She runs away from a situation she doesn't want to find herself in. Uh, I don't know what happened to her at the end. Okay, well, another really uh, fascinating story. Yeah. So the, the third story is a little different um, and interesting, is Anna Kluger as you talk about, and, and, and this one is interesting because she doesn't convert, so I'll give away the ending, she doesn't convert, but there is a covenant in, involved, but also she sues her parents, so uh, let's talk a little bit about her story. Yeah, so Anna Ochaya is a, a Jewish name, uh, so uh, they lived in uh, what was then a, a suburb of Krakow, and now it's part of Krakow, uh, and realizing that they have a brilliant daughter, they sent her to one of the best schools in the city, a uh, very rigorous uh, program of, of, of studies. Uh, when she finished uh, primary school, she wanted to continue uh, and, and study in a high school. 
Uh, her mother, I have to say, I, I didn't mention, uh, her mother is a Halberstam. She's a direct descendant of the uh, founder of the uh, Tsan's uh, dynasty, the Divrechaim, Haim Halberstam. So she's really a direct uh, descendant. And as is uh, often in cases like this, she married a very rich guy. So they're really, according to the press, they're millionaires. Uh, and when she's 15, her parents uh, engage her to uh, uh, a guy who's 14 years old. In the beginning, she resists, but her mother tells her that once she gets married, it will be easier for her to continue her studies. So she acquiesces. She get, two years later, she gets married with him. She tells her husband on the uh, uh, first night that she won't live with him as a, uh, as a, as a, as a wife. And she continues to study. She uh, uh, takes her uh, matriculation exam as an external student in one of the high schools, female high schools in, uh, in Krakow. She registers to also at, at the Jagiellonian University in, in Krakow. But her life becomes impossible because her mother uh, senses that something is wrong between her and her husband and she interferes in her intimate life and she decides to run away. Uh, she takes her younger sister with her. By the way, even after what happened to her, her parents sends, sent her younger sister also to this type of rigorous school. You know, we're used to this idea that everything needs to be harmonious, the education at home. This wasn't the case. Uh, it's difficult to get into the mindset, but this is what I... I, I, I think, because otherwise, why would they do the same as the younger sister? And they decide to, to run away. She takes valuables, all the jewelry that she got for her wedding, cash and so on. Uh, they hide in a convent again, because that's the only place that uh, young uh, women could uh, find a uh, shelter. And she takes a lawyer, a socialist lawyer, and the, they sue the parents in the local court, uh, demanding that he uh, allows them to continue to study for her to go to the university and uh, cover all their expenses and also live outside the home. As far as the law is considered, uh, uh, she's not considered married because it was only a religious uh, marriage. So she's 24 under the uh, authority of, of the father. She loses in the local court and she takes it to the Supreme Court in Vienna. And of course, even in the parliament, the question is, can one coerce the father to send the daughter to a university? Uh, women were admitted to universities in the Habsburg Empire only in uh, 1897. So the whole thing is still new for, for women, but at the end she, she wins uh, her case. Uh, she later continues uh, her studies at the University of Vienna. She gets her PhD in history. One of the uh, first women, I should say, because a lot of women studied pedagogy and, and, and so on. And when she finished and uh, she, she goes back to Krakow, she marries, but by that time, she's not married anymore to her first husband who got a, a, a get of a hundred banim because he couldn't deliver the get to her because they didn't know where she's hiding. She marries a, 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 one of the most famous uh, socialists in Krakow. There's a lot written about him, nothing about her, although the press is full. Again, the press find in, in this story such you know sensational uh, uh, element, elements. Uh, also legal journals write about the, uh, her uh, story. Uh, so she becomes a teacher in the what's called the, the Hebrew gymnasium, the Hebrew high school. It's a Jewish high school. It's not, it's not a religious, not anti-religious, but it's not a religious uh, high school. And uh, she and her husband were uh, killed in the, in the Holocaust. So uh, uh, that's uh, her story. I tried to uh, learn more about her sister and I got to a, a relative in, in Israel, but it was a week after somebody from the uh, family, her, her niece died a week before. So I couldn't find out, uh, couldn't find out uh, about her. And what I have from her is her whole uh, um, petition to the Supreme Court 
in which she, she tells her story, the sister's story, the, all the testimonies, uh, and so on. So it really opens us up to, to, to the lives of women uh, like her. And uh, it's important for me to say, because, you know, sometimes the ideas, uh, people say, oh, they were drawn to all kinds of, uh, I don't know, socialists, Zionists, they had literature. They were also women who were intellectually driven. And she is an example uh, of that. And it's important to, to recognize that. All she wanted is to study. Right, and maybe that has something to do with her schooling, that she wanted to just continue. And, yeah. and these are three fascinating stories and uh, sad. Um, and they they definitely, like I said, they're like a micro history, some sort of snapshot of what unfortunately yeah. was going on until we get to the, the, the final chapter of your book. Yeah, well, one more thing. Uh, it was, since you, you used the word sad, it was very sad for her parents because they were really ashamed uh, at one point, uh, they asked their lawyer uh, to, to write a whole uh, article and send it to the Neue Freie Presse, the most important uh, newspaper in, in, in Vienna, and tell their side of the story, because they were portrayed in the press as fanatics and so on. And, and they said, we gave her all the educations that uh, middle-class people give their daughters. So they, they try to, you know, preserve their, their uh, reputation. It, it was, and once it got to, to uh, uh, you know, families like this, rabbinic families, known families, it was clear to everyone that this cannot continue. When it happened with village girls, nobody cared. Uh, but, uh, you know, to a Halberstam, that's, that's, another, that's another story. Yeah. So then let's talk about that change. So that, I mean, the change really comes about, as you discussed, during World War One and then after um, World War One. I. I mean, what, what takes place that suddenly we get to these, I think, what was it, Chavetzelet, and then Atelas, and Yavna, and then there's Beis Yaakov. How do, we, how, do we, how do we get to, what changes, what happens there? So first of all, the, the war. Uh, the war caused the uh, disaffection of uh, Orthodox uh, uh, youth, uh, there was dislocation. People uh, found themselves as, as refugees. Uh, yeshivas were closed. Rabbis that uh, the whole uh, fabric of, of Jewish life was was destroyed. And at times like this, usually this this is a again quote unquote, unquote a good time to introduce uh, changes because you can't return to what was before once everything is is. Uh, is destroyed. Uh, and in, in Eastern Europe, uh, especially because the, the uh, occupation, the German occupation in part of Poland, in Warsaw, uh, and in Lithuania, uh, we get neo-Orthodox uh, rabbiner doctors uh, who come. Uh, so you mentioned the uh, Chabatzelet in 1917, the same year as Sarah Schneer uh, opens up her uh, little afternoon school. They established a high school for girls, Chabatzelet. Uh, the the Gerebe didn't oppose, and in the daily Aguda Press, their advertisement for Chabatzelet every day. Uh, as I said, the, the time is ripe for, for change. Uh, in uh, Lithuania, we first have the uh, entails the first uh, 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 high school for, for girls where the uh, religious studies are, are taught in Hebrew. So this is different than uh, Lithuania is, is a different story. It really uh, demands a, a different, a different uh, uh, treatment. Uh, uh, there were three uh, high schools for, uh, for girls, all called Yavne schools. And uh, the first one uh, entails uh, second one in Kovno and the third one in in, uh, in Konovich. Uh, so in the tells they had some of the teachers were uh, the neo-orthodox Bahurim who came to study during the war, some of them when they served in the German army. Uh, in the yeshiva, some of them with PhD, and they in the beginning they taught uh, the girls in the school. There was also a uh, a teacher seminary attached to the tells uh, to the tells uh, yeshiva. So uh, 
everywhere in Eastern Europe, it's a time for, for change, not only for girls' education, also for boys' education, which is not my uh, expertise. And then we have in, uh, in Krakow with Sarah Schneer, so the, the Germans don't come, the neo-Orthodox, they don't come to Krakow, but she goes, you know, the opposite uh, way. She goes to, to Vienna. Uh, and this is uh, when she, this idea of establishing a, a girls' school uh, uh, comes into, uh, into her mind. Uh, and when she comes back, that's what, what uh, she's doing. I, I want to emphasize that at least in the beginning, everything that she does, she does with rabbinic approval. Because there was some, you know, that said that she did it despite the opposition. There was no opposition. She consults with a Belzareb, everybody's familiar with that, uh, even though I now have another version of that, but I can't go into it now. Uh, she consults with a Bobova uh, Rebbe, uh, so she doesn't do uh, anything against, uh, she asks rabbis before every, every step. She's very, she's very uh, careful. Um, and, and how how much of that, how much of this, especially Sarah Schneer, how much was a reaction to what we discussed, what had been going on, what she saw, what had been occurring beforehand? So, so uh, the way I see it, uh, as I said before, she she was really in her neighborhood. Uh, so I see her also as a, a sort of a rebellious daughter, uh, like the other one. Uh, she goes against the grain. She does something that she finds another solution. Uh, for the other girls, they just left. For her, she's trying to, to mend uh, the situation. So for her too, the, the existing situation is not something that can continue. And she goes back in 1917, it ends up that uh, Krakow wasn't a, a war scene. So she, she could go back uh, uh, earlier. But of course, uh, her, all her education was, was, you know, she only had primary school, so she doesn't have uh, the skills needed to open a school. We call it a school, but strictly speaking, it's not a school. It's an afternoon programs for girls who go uh, to a Polish school in, in the morning. And then, of course, 1918 is the Second Polish Republic, the, the end of the uh, Habsburg uh, Empire and the uh, the the conversion law everything that uh, that we discussed before they don't apply to Poland so the girls can't turn away to a convent knock on the door and find shelter there that this is over with because of the no political situation right okay and like I said you do go more in depth in this in the in the book in the last chapter and obviously for all that we've discussed I'll put the link in the show's notes to the uh, to the book so people can purchase the, the book. Um, uh, finally, I want to ask you, I was to ask you about what you're working on now. I know you mentioned something related. I think you just worked on something related to, uh, to our conversation that you maybe you wanted to discuss. Yeah. So, uh, um, after the book was published, uh, I became uh, aware of the, uh, uh, an existence of an extreme, uh, source, a diary by a young woman uh, whose father had studied in the Hafez Haim's uh, yeshiva and later worked as a fundraiser for the yeshiva. The diary is written in a beautiful masculine Hebrew. Uh, it spans the year 1924 of the of the institutions. So so we get a more a less idealized uh, picture uh, and more details uh, and stories about the different teachers, about how they were taught, 
what were the uh, religious expectations of the girls when they left ho- they, they, they left for holidays or, 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 or whatever. But uh, what was particularly interesting for me, she lives uh, not from, far from Vilna, and this area the, was like a former Lithuanian region that was annexed to Poland after World War I. She considers herself a Lithuanian. She looks down at the Polish girls, which for her are Hasidic daughters. That's how she said they're immature. I treat them like uh, uh, little girls and so on. They, uh, uh, and I'll call them Lithuanian too, although it's part of Poland. The Lithuanian girls, almost all of them, uh, were uh, sent for, uh, for primary school to Talmud school which was a, a Zionist uh, school uh, network. I also know, I have a personal knowledge. This is uh, one of the Rashi Yeshiva of Ponovich. Uh, he was from Godno, he was sent to the Mir, but his sisters were sent, again, this is personal knowledge. Uh, his sisters were, were sent to Talbot school. She first went to the uh, Talbot teacher seminary for two years, it's a uh, five years, a seminary after two years, her father got worried and he registered her in the Krakow seminary. And because they went to Tarbut, all the Lithuanian students, they know Hebrew. They have textual skills. The Hasidic girls don't have those skills. And this creates a lot of problems in the seminary, which, as I said, I write about it in a, in a forthcoming uh, article. Uh, so we have this divide among between... Hasidic and Litvish or Yeshivish, as now they call it, also among women, which was very, I didn't realize that before, that it existed so early. Wow, that's indeed amazing to, to see. Uh, is, is this diary, is, is it available for anyone to read or no? Uh, so the, the truth is that uh, it was published by, by your son. Uh, in a limited, uh, uh, j- just for families and friends, there is only one copy in the uh, National Library, uh, but nobody knew about it. So uh, uh, the story how I discovered it is, is uh, complicated. It's a long story. Uh, so uh, I got in touch with, with our son. I'm going to meet him uh, next week. We were in touch for, for a whole year. So uh, so it was available, but it was unknown. Uh, and, and as I said, it's only in one in one place. I, I'm, I'm going to try to, to bring it to, to the US for several academic libraries. So because it, it, it's just a, a fantastic, a fantastic source. She also writes a lot about her father, general education and and so on. So you learn a lot from that. Maybe you should have a make an English translation of it. Uh, if somebody, it's my wish that uh, I don't know, uh, maybe a doctoral student, uh, whatever. I think it's worth ta- also her experience as a Besiakov teacher. Uh, I'll just add, add one thing. I don't know how much time we have left. Uh, uh, she, uh, when she's a teacher in the uh, in a city called Shedlitz, she befriends a Hasidic. Daughter, she doesn't call them Hasidic women or Hasidic girls, Hasidic daughters, uh, who was the, the sister of Bauch Rabinowitz, who married the uh, only daughter of the Munkacher, and later he became the Munkacher Rebbe. And it's very interesting what they do together. They go to, they go to movies. It's not what we think of the Orthodox life between the walls. So it's not just a Besyakov element, but it tells us a lot. Uh, she writes when they went, when she went to the seminary from her home, it was a, a long trip. They would all sit together with a, uh, a yeshiva uh, bachurim who went to Baranovich. They sat together in the train, they talked, and then, you know, the, the Baranovich stopped, the, the Baranovich bachurim left. But they had contacts. It, it's a completely different, uh, different world. Sort of reminds me about the making of a gadol type of uh, of story. So I guess we'll stay tuned for the for the article. And um, yeah. 
are you as, as just one final question are you are, are you working on a new book now or no yeah so uh, uh i have already uh drafts of uh, four chapter i'm working i'm going back to galicia uh to the galicianers at my uh, my main uh, interest and it will be arranged according to topics uh, of galicia from the uh, uh, the beginning from the annexation of Galicia to Austria, 1772, till the constitution in 1867. It will be about the uh, religious life, communal lives, uh, uh, contacts with the, uh, you know, governments and, and 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 so on. So that's my my next big project. Okay, very interesting. So. Uh, thank you, Professor Madigan, once again for joining me, and uh, I will put the uh, link to the to people can uh, purchase the book in the show's notes. Well, thank you very much for giving me this uh, opportunity to talk about the things you know <laughs> that, that I'm passionate about. I have I have to say, yeah. My pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. My pleasure. Thank you once again.